Tonight, we are going to continue on with the series. We've taken a break in the series that we would normally do. And what we've done is we've said that we want to respond to what's happening in this country by being able to speak into the way that our country has been set up from a racial dynamic. And what we've said is now we want to just, we want to tell the story of America, but we want to now create a space for us to think about what would it mean to be an anti-racist, a, a phrase that we're hearing more and more for many people who are watching this or many people who have been living in America. You've, that, that phrase has just been We've heard it on the news and we're reading it in articles, but what does it truly mean to be an anti-racist? And moreover, what does it mean to be a Christian anti-racist? I moved to Brooklyn several years ago, about 2013. And when I moved here, one of the things that I found was so powerful was that we, um, we moved into an apartment that was in Park Slope, Brooklyn. When we moved in there, um, you know, we kind of, we, we hung out with the people and all that, but we had to find a school. So we go up to the school, we go in there, and I'm telling you, everything was phenomenal. I mean, we, they, when they did a play, there was somebody from like Sesame Street that would come and teach them the play. When they did a dance, they would have folks from Alvin Ailey actually come and teach you how to dance. And so we were like, man, this is like Disney World and all the rides are for free. I mean, this place is amazing. So we start hanging out there, learning all the different things that are happening there in the community, but we're just blown away by this school. So all of a sudden we decided, you know what, we're going to go to this PTA meeting because I want to find out like, how do they come up with this brilliance. I started noticing like everything they did, they charged money for it. I mean, it would be like $5, $10. I'm like, I don't remember the last time I paid to go to like a kid's carnival. I mean, it was so much money. And then, so we, we go to this PTA meeting and while we're there, it is swarmed with moms. And the principal would say like, hey, we need more pencils. And the moms would look at each other like, let's go to Costco now. And I mean, they were just ready, armed and ready to do stuff for the school, right? So there we are. And then, so we got to know the school a little bit more. And then, you know, we learned about the budget. This PTA had millions of dollars, millions of dollars. And I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I was like, I cannot believe that I am seeing a seven-figure budget for a PTA. There's something more happening than pencils and erasers this is, this is like powerful. And so everything they did was with excellence because they were funded so well. Well, we decided we wanted to move our church to Flatbush, Brooklyn. And so we, as a family, we moved out there too. And, and now we're going to go over to PS315. Now, just to be clear, PS10 is pretty much a predominantly white school, a majority culture school. And so then we go over to PS315. Now, this school is mostly black and brown, mostly Caribbean, right? So we go there. And it's a great school. We love the people. We're like, you know, we're going to get involved. All of a sudden, my wife is the president of the PTA. I'm the vice president of the PTA. So we're like, you know what? We want to do stuff in the school. We want to make changes. We want to be like over there at Park Slope. You know, we want to bring people in, all that. And we started noticing like when they did a play, you know, they would bring in like auntie and she was great. They wanted to do a dance. They would bring in a home girl. It was great. They were all volunteers. It was wonderful. So as we became president of the PTA, we just decided, okay, well, what's the budget? What's our budget? $40. The budget was $40. We can't even get pizza. $40. And we sat there and we just thought to ourselves like, 
What can we actually do for these kids? Now our church ended up funding the PTA and we started them off with like, I think two or $3,000 and we helped help them out. But goodness gracious, I can use that same working analogy about the PTA and I can do that in lots of places in New York City. Because if I, if I compare Clinton Hill to Brownsville, if I compare Chelsea, Manhattan to Coney Island, I guarantee I'm going to see the same thing. But watch this. If I pan out, I can do that all over New York. If I pan out, I can do that all over the East Coast. If I pan out, I can do that over the Southeast. And if you gave me a map of America and put a blindfold around me and give me a dart, I could just throw a dart anywhere and you're gonna see this phrase called racial disparities. Now, regardless of how we got there, racial disparities is the quality or state of racial differences in our country. So we're not just talking about poverty, rich and poor, that's anywhere in the globe. We're not just talking about health disparities. We're not just talking about education disparities. We're saying that across the board, there are racialized disparities in this country and it is a historical reality of this country. So before we move on in this conversation, if you are not willing to admit that we have racial disparities, I think there might be another game show on right now. There might be something else you can do. Don't watch the rest of the sermon because this is not for you because the rest of this is going to, the, the, you have to presume and believe that there are racial disparities in our country, disparities based on race. So how then, so then the next stage is most people believe and you know, agree that there are racial disparities in our country. So then we have to answer the question, why? Why are there racial disparities? And the answer to that question will be based upon the story you tell of America. And so I wanna introduce you tonight to, to four different storytellers. And these storytellers will tell you a different way that they understand race in America. Moreover, they will understand why black people are in the state they are in, in America. Moreover, there's somewhere you're gonna find yourself in these categories. The first is the racist. He, he tells the story like this. Black people are where they are because they are inferior. White people are superior. The way that white people do things is it, with excellence. Black people, when you look in their schools, when you look in their home, when you look in their music, when you look at their families, they just have a debased culture as a people. So the reason why we see this happening again and again, because as a people, they're bottom people. We're top people. We're, we're, we, there's essentially a caste system in the culture. And to the degree, it's in their DNA. Now, I want to note this. What I just said what I just said is what a racist would say, but I just want to know, I've never met a racist. No, I'm, I'm sorry. What I'm, I don't mean that I've never heard a person do race, like say racist stuff and do racist things. Racist people generally are caught on film. Like racist people are caught in Snapchats. They're caught in group chats. They're caught in like text messages. Racist people have to be caught. And guess what? When they say racist things and do racist things, what's the first thing they say? I did this, but I'm not a racist. 
So the one thing you can guarantee is that the racist covers up his badge. Get the play on ideas? Okay. So the, so the reality is racists never admit they're racist. So this is a person who believes that black people have a debased culture because as a people, they're lesser than. But then as I move you along these categories, there's a person who believes that as a storyteller, they're just racially indifferent. They're tired of hearing race as an excuse. I mean, I don't think black people are inferior. I just think black people need tough love. I mean, they've got all these programs and don't tell me about black lives mattering. Let's get, get, get those words out of there. Every time I hear the word black, I, I cringe. Let's not, let's, can we just stop talking about black? I'll stop talking about white and, and together we'll just be Americans or, or, or we'll just do life together. All lives matter, all of us matter. You know, you know I don't see color. <laughs> you know what? I don't see color. When I see you, I see my brother. You know what I'm saying? So, so what, what's happening is the racially indifferent want black people to assimilate in America and stop bringing up the fact that you're black. You have disparities. So racially indifferent people believe that racial disparities are based upon behavioral patterns and poor choices. And if, if black folks would just keep their dads in the home, they'd be better. And again, the racially indifferent person leads churches, leads worship, loves God, all that. The racially indifferent generally hang out with the racists. They kind of watch some of the same news channels, amen, and they vote for some of the same people. Let's move on. All right, so then you have the racial reconciler. And this is where a lot of the church is. The racial reconciler, for them, the way that they understand life is they believe that we need to have more equality in our country. We, 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 the racial reconciler says to themselves, black people have had it tough and they need to be given some advantages. So the way that we will give them opportunity is by inviting them into white spaces. We'll give them scholarships, come on in. You can come to our churches, come on in. You can read our books, you can come, I'll give you a scholarship, you can come to our seminaries. And so the way that the racial reconciler believes that the world will change is by creating unity and harmony and creating spaces where we all come together. And I'll equip you to go change your community, but, but I want you to come to my space We're not gonna talk as much about your place, where you're from. And so, so the racial reconciler, these are great people. These are great people. But the fourth category is the anti-racist. And the anti-racist, there's several things. And you've probably heard this uh, in the news. You might even heard me talk about this. If you are going to be an anti-racist, you are going to have a concern about the historical origins of disparities. You are concerned about the current policies that shape disparities. You are also, in addition, because you believe that the disparities are not just based upon individual achievement, but you, they're based on historical realities and policies that keep um, these, these disparities in place, then you therefore are committed to advancing the black community in light of those disparities. 
because you believe that disparities are unjust. The mere fact that there's a disparity, you believe that they're unjust and you believe as a Christian anti-racist, you believe that God believes disparities are unjust. Now, when I, when I mention disparities, I could go on and on. I don't have time to go through the entire message and land on what disparities are in our culture. But when you look at wealth, when you look at the white family and you look at a black family, when you look at a white family, their wealth is about $171,000. When you look at a black family, it's about $17,000. That's 10 times the amount of wealth. What is wealth? Wealth is when you have houses that you own and you have investments, but you also have an inheritance that you can pass down. And more often than not, black people only have about $17,000 of wealth. When you look at healthcare, when it comes to healthcare, about close to 10% of black people do not have healthcare and about 5% of white people. And so there's a good chance that a black person is working the kind of job that they don't have healthcare. When you look at now what our culture is focused on is the disproportionate amount of black people that are killed by the police. 13% of our population is black, yet 31% of the people killed by the police are black. In addition to that, police killed by policing while not attacking was 39%. What that means essentially is about 40% of the people that weren't doing anything, that didn't have a gun, were, were black and got killed. And so there's a disproportionate amount of black people getting killed by the police. And that's the moment that we're in as a culture. And a lot of people are feeling compassion about this issue, which is good. But do we want to dismantle the systems that are in place because these disparities are there? You see, the problem of the church is that it's focused all its energy on getting diversity in the church, but they've ignored the disparities in their cities. And that's why the racial reconciler, that's why, that's why all this week, you know, racial reconciliation, we need to be reconciled. But we say that, but a lot of the white people are like, I like black people. I like them. I like Michael Jordan. I like LeBron James. Like they like black people. They're just doing nothing in their communities. And so, so, so the reality is what I want to do tonight is I want us to understand our racist culture. Far too often what we do is we try to pinpoint all the racists, which we should. We need to highlight people that are racist. But we have to understand that we live in a racist culture. Culture is agreed upon norms. It's just the way that it is. So a racist culture normalizes racial disparities by ignoring American history and placing no emphasis on racist policies. In other words, a racist culture says black people are in that situation because that's just the way it is and that's just who they are and they like it, okay? And that's the culture that we're in. And I wanna look at a text of a, a people of God, a community of God that was responding to God and wanting to seek his face. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 58. And so in Isaiah 58, verse three, this is what the people say. And they're having a conversation to God. They're praying to God. And they say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And so fasting is probably one of the highest ways in which we say we want to seek God's face. It's not just prayer, but we're pushing away from that which we would love to enjoy in order to tell God, I'm humbling myself before you. 
but God is not answering their prayers. We don't know what they were praying for and we don't know the situation, but they're, they're saying, why aren't you listening to my prayers? Why aren't you changing my situation? And God responds to them in Isaiah 58, five and six. He says, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and sackcloth and ashes under him? Now notice that there in verse five, he keeps saying a, a person to humble himself, that's singular. Bow down his head, that's singular. Spread sackcloth and ashes under him as the individual. But he says in verse six, is not this the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free? And to break every yoke? To break every yoke? Look at the imagery that he's saying there. There are bonds of wickedness. There are straps. There are yokes. And yet here, God is not talking about where the yoke came from. God is not talking about how did they get in that situation. What, what God is saying here is the mere fact that there is a disparity in your community and you're ignoring it, I have a problem with it. He says there are yokes, there are straps. And so he says in verse seven, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? I love what God says here because God is making a play on ideas. You see, when you fast, the presumption is that when they were fasting, what they were doing was they were saying, I'm not going to eat bread because I want to get close to God. I'm not going to eat bread because I want to get close to God. Monday, I'm not going to eat bread because I want to get close to God. Tuesday, I'm not going to eat bread because I want to get close to God. Wednesday, I'm not going to eat bread because I want to get close to God. Thursday, I'm not going to eat bread because I want to get close to God. And the Lord says on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, what did you do with the bread you didn't eat? You see, fasting is a privilege for people that have food. When you don't have food, you don't fast. That's called starvation. You see, so he's saying, what'd you do with the bread? You didn't share your bread. You, 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 you were fasting and praying and you were walking past people begging for bread. And so what he's saying is, you want my eyes to look at your broken situation. But I'm going to ignore you until you start looking at their broken situation. What'd you do with the bread? And what, in, in the second part of the verse, which I find so powerful, he says, don't hide yourself from your own flesh. You've got to understand the, 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 how punchy that is for God to say that to Jewish people. You see, first and foremost, in a Hebrew context, family was everything. So you never conceived of individual progress amongst a Hebrew family. As if family, if a family member was moving ahead and they didn't move with you, 
that was considered unjust. And so in the Hebrew culture, family was everything. They moved together. But when he says flesh, your own flesh, he's not talking about Jewish people. He's talking about Gentiles. He's talking about aliens and strangers. He's talking about people that they would want to move away from. People that they would not, not naturally move towards. And so God is having to shake them and say, you guys are seeking my face, but ignoring the broken and vulnerable. And I care about the the poor and the vulnerable have a special place in my heart. And if you are going to glorify me and you're going to care about this city like I care about this city, you cannot keep driving into your parking lots, walking up to the foyer, getting your coffee, lifting up your hands, asking that I heal our land. And you drove past all the broken communities. I didn't drive past them. You want to follow me? I don't drive past the broken communities. I hang out there. Do you know where I was raised? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus doesn't ignore the broken communities. And so he says, until you start noticing their brokenness, I'm not going to notice yours. We struggle with this because there is a part of us that sees broken disparities in our country as for the, those who are desperate. That's black people's problem. That's the black church's problem. But he says, this is your flesh and blood by nature of them being in your community. He's not talking about other churches or other people of God. He's saying by very nature of them being in your community, I hold you responsible for repairing the brokenness in your community. So him saying flesh and blood is so punchy. I have two daughters, I have three daughters, but I have two older ones. And you know, imagine if you would, my older daughter Faith, Imagine she comes to me and she says, daddy, 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 um, can I help you cook dinner tonight? I mean, can I set up the table? I mean, can I just put the, can I just put the plates out? You'd be like, yes. She's like, thank you, daddy. And she puts the plates out. She goes, daddy, 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 can I, can I take the trash out? I just want to take the trash out. Yeah, baby. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, daddy, 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 before you go to work, can I put all your stuff in your bag for you? I would just love to help you. Yeah, baby. And so before I go to work, I give her a kiss. I love you, sweetheart. I go to work, I come back. My other daughter, Leah, my wife says she's sick and she's lying in bed and she's sweating. And I go in there and I get on one knee and I say, come on, what's, what's wrong, baby? What's wrong, baby? And she goes, daddy, I'm not doing good. And I go, oh, baby, let me, oh, baby, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Oh, let me pray for you, let me pray for you. And I'm just hugging my daughter. I'm like, oh, baby. And then... My daughter Faith comes in and goes, hey, Daddy, I'm on my knee. I'm saying, what? She goes, can, can we get some time, Daddy? Dad, Daddy, can we make dinner together? Dad, Daddy, can I, can, can I do stuff with you? And I would look down at her and I would say, do you see your sick sister? Go get some water. Go get some bread. Do something for your sister because I care about where she is right now. It's not that you don't matter. It's her sickness matters more right now. I'm focused on her. Would you help me help her because I care about her? I'm not ignoring you. 
And right there, she would be helping her own flesh and blood. She'd be caring for that of which she is, she's made to. And it would be wild if I just walked away from my sick child and went and played with my healthy one. To be in a family, you care for everyone in the family. And maybe we've been ignoring the sick members of our family, the broken members of our family. And until you see the broken parts of your community as your family, built up by you, your responsibility, I don't believe we have God's heart. You would rebuke your child. You know, the story of Zacchaeus, it's a powerful story. Zacchaeus in Luke 19, don't go there, but in Luke 19, Zacchaeus is trying to check out Jesus. Remember that story? And when he's trying to look at Jesus and trying to get a glimpse at him, all of a sudden he's like, man, I want to hang out with Jesus. So he comes down off the tree and then all of a sudden he runs into Jesus. And in verse eight of Luke 19, uh, oh no, uh, in verse seven, he says he's gone in the guest of a man of a sinner. So he's hanging out with Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus stands before the Lord. And the first thing that Zacchaeus says is, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So what we understand is Zacchaeus is a tax collector that's been skimming off the top and defrauding people, but he's not just doing it personally. He's a part of a Roman system of taxation that has put him in a position to be able to hurt people that he should be caring for. So the first thing he says is to follow Jesus means that I have to look back at how I got my money. And I actually have to think about the people that have been defrauded. And I actually have to think about the policies and systems that were put in place that gave me an advantage and them a disadvantage. So if I'm going to follow you, Jesus, I got to rethink my resources. Matthew was benefiting from a system. He said, to follow you, I can't pretend I've not received the benefits of that system. That's not reparations, that's repentance. In, in sociology, when talking about race and the historical disparities of race, oftentimes an analogy of monopoly is used. I am a horrible monopoly, monopoly player. So this analogy is built out of a vision, not out of practice, amen? So I'm there, and let's say a bunch of us are playing Monopoly. And we decide we're gonna play Monopoly and as we're playing and we're playing and we're playing. And if, you ever, if you've played Monopoly, have you ever passed, you know, go and didn't collect your $200? Didn't you get frustrated? You're like, gosh, I forgot to get my $200. Well, imagine we played 400 rounds of Monopoly, 400 rounds. And every time I got money, I had to give it to my counterpart. And every time I got a house, I had to give it to my counterpart. And so for 400 rounds, I'm making money, but I'm giving it to them. I'm making money, but I'm giving it to them. I'm making money, but I'm giving it to them. And then every time I get a house, I give it to you. Every time I get a house, I give it to you. But then all of a sudden, the rules change and the folks who are running the board say, you know what? You, you can start getting some houses. <laughs> you can get some houses, you can get some money. 
So for 50 rounds, now what we do is I get some money, but whenever my counterparts, whenever they feel like it, they can take some of the money that I have. They can actually flick off and burn down whole communities if they want to and flick off houses there. In fact, this is funny, but some of my teammates start disappearing and the people on the other side just start shrugging their shoulders. And now I'm playing the game, but I'm grieving because I don't see my teammates anymore. And so we do this for 400 rounds. Then we do that for 50 rounds. And I've, I don't have many houses. I don't have much money. And then after 450 rounds, my counterparts say, you know what? You know what? Can I ask you a question? Why aren't you winning? And that question asked again and again would echo back to all the rounds that you defrauded me. That question would echo back to all the houses I don't own. And I would look at those houses on Park Place and Boardwalk and I would want to burn the whole game down. And I'd want to flip the whole game over because the game is rigged. And that's why they're riding because they don't feel they own anything and they don't feel, they feel that for years these disparities have been in place. What do we do? How do we do the work of anti-racism? We have to start considering that most people may not even think about disparities and systems having a symbiotic relationship. Disparities are just the way they are. They're just, the communities are just the way they are. I, I don't want to get into it. I don't want to talk. I, I just, I don't want to talk about, it. let's just pray. Let's just pray. Let's God change the world. You know, but we don't want to talk about how the world got that way. You have family members, coworkers, networks, people on social media. You have friends that when you think about those that are surrounding you, I say this to those that are black and brown because I believe that many black and brown people can be racially indifferent and they also can be just a racial reconciler. But for those of you around you, you need to start thinking to yourself, from the people around me, are they a racist? Are they racially indifferent? Are they just a racial reconciler? Or are they anti-racist? You see, for the racist, I believe that the way that we have to begin to look at this, and that's what next week I'm gonna be talking about, the historical and spiritual roots of racism. What we have to do is we have to break the chains of racism, not just by focus on policy, but we have to pray that those chains are broken because we wrestle not against policy and history, we wrestle against principalities and powers. You see, racism is demonic. And so we have to begin to pray for the racist people that you know in your family and racist people in your networks. We have to pray that they start seeing people made in the image of God. For those that are racially indifferent, we have to pray that they would, we would help them to actually see the disparities in their community and they would move beyond just thinking of behavior and they would actually begin to become aware of history and they would actually peek into policy and they would look into policy and politics and they would look with a Christian worldview, not a Republican nor a Democratic one. 
And for the racial reconciler, praise God you want everybody in the same room. Praise God you want unity and praise God you want harmony. But we must go beyond inviting black people into our white spaces. If we're going to dismantle racism, we have to think about the disparities in the city, not just the diversity in the church. And so for the racial reconciler, I pray that you would capture a vision for outside of your walls, even if they don't come to your church. And see, for the anti-racists, for the anti-racists here, you wanna be anti-racist? Become aware of the historical and political strongholds of racism in the country, in your city, and in your neighborhood. Become aware. Invest in the black community in your city. Support black leadership and support black businesses. I was just uh, doing a live and a woman asked, she says, hey, there's so many black people that won't come to our church. Our church is diverse. We want more black people. I said, well, find a great black church and invest money into them. We have to reconfigure the way that we think about salvation and the kingdom coming in because maybe everybody won't come into our space. But we have to then pray against those disparities and pray for your city. We're here tonight in this moment because of George Floyd and the moment that we saw on film, the moment that shocked our eyes. Roger Goodell in the NFL is saying black lives matter. Whole businesses are having blackout Tuesday. Everybody's black today. Everybody cares about black lives. But is this a moment of compassion for the city or is this a movement to dismantle racism? That's the question. Because if you are not dismantling racism, you are still allowing it to happen. If there are disparities in the city and you're ignoring them, that means you are allowing a racist culture to continue to exist. Think for a second that moment with George Floyd. Do you remember the images there? I don't want to shock you, but do you remember? You, you've, you've seen partial, at least the images, a knee on a neck, a knee on a neck. But if you look at the picture of who got arrested, it wasn't just the person with the knee on their neck. There were four men arrested. One officer was over to the side, telling the people to move back. Another officer was at the feet, Another officer was at the legs. Another officer is in the body. All four of them got arrested. I guess Derek Chauvin, the guy with the knee on the neck, I guess he's racist. I mean, we've deemed him racist. Pretty much we've said to do that, you got to be a racist. So we've just said he's racist. So let's just think the racist is the one with the knee on the neck. The racist is the one doing the obvious racist thing. Why were all four arrested? All four were arrested because while Derek Chauvin had his knee on the neck of a black man, the other three watched. And you have to ask yourself, if you are not dismantling racism, you are allowing the knee of racism to choke out black people year after year after year. And the only thing that we can end racism 
and change our culture or we or our grandkids will be back at this place protesting even harder. The only thing we can do is dismantle racism. It's to push Derek Chauvin off and say, I don't care if I, if I don't do things and, and, and all the police are gonna be mad at me. I don't care if I lose friends. I don't care if you even arrest me. I refuse to be around as you put the knee on the neck of someone that's been made in the image of God. And so every policy, every aspect of history, I'm gonna know it because I don't want the knee on the neck of black people in my community. I'm gonna invest in black leadership. I'm gonna say black lives matter, but I'm not gonna put it as a hashtag. I'm not gonna put it on my social media. Black lives matter if they don't come to my church. Black lives matter if they're not my friends. Black lives matter when they're empowered, so I'm investing and I'm praying. And I'm praying against the stronghold, the demonic stronghold of racism. Every day. Father, in the name of Jesus, heal our land. In the name of Jesus, heal our land. In the name of Jesus, heal our land. There's a demonic stronghold in our midst. There's a demonic stronghold in our midst, God. There's a way that people that you love are perceived. There are areas in our community that are broken and we keep driving past them and we roll the window up and we make sure our air conditions up and our radios up just enough that we don't have to see. In Isaiah, in Isaiah, he said, he said, he, you know, he said, he said, in Isaiah 58, he said, why do you hide yourself from your own flesh? In many ways, the suburban church became the suburbs because they wanted to hide themselves from black people. They wanted to move away from black people. You're hiding yourself from your own flesh. You only moved in that neighborhood until it got gentrified because you wanted to hide yourself from your own flesh. And you say, they got a problem. It's their fault. But then you did a mission trip to Africa and you got a picture with someone that looks just like the people down the street. It is a scourge, it is a rebuke on the white evangelical church when we have spent all this money to go across the globe to bless black people and dig wells and we are not willing to go across the railroad tracks where we know there's brokenness because we hide ourselves from our own flesh. Heal our land. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray, amen.